Hey guys, welcome to Recently Podcast. Super excited to have Ted Manahan on this podcast. He lives in the Bay Area. He's been a recently user for a while, so I wanted to bring him on this call and just learn about his experience, you know, living in probably one of the most expensive markets in the country, kind of, you know, uh, what he's doing. So welcome, Ted. How are you, man? I'm very well. Thank you, Sharad. Absolutely, man. Thank you for being on the podcast. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you live, what do you do? I'm a full-time investor. I do wholesaling and fix and flip. Uh, I live in San Francisco. Uh, I do the whole Bay Area, you know, so down to San Jose, including Silicon Valley, and then up in Marin. Uh, as well. I moved to San Francisco like 09. Uh, my background is engineering, mechanical engineering. I worked for some big companies. Uh, Toyota was the big one that I worked at, at uh, right out of school. When I moved to the Bay, I got into the solar industry, you know, did a lot of process engineering, uh, a lot of quality engineering when I was at Toyota. And when I was in the solar industry, uh, it was growing aggressively at the time, and it still is growing. It'll continue to grow. Uh, but the investment tax credits were brand new. And so the growth trajectory was uh, was parabolic. It was very, very fast at the time. So my role was to build out processes, business systems, hiring departments, that kind of thing. So staffing up, you know, starting from scratch in terms of business processes, that kind of thing, documentation. Uh, that that was something that I had sort of a background in. In 2017, you know, I finally got burned out with the uh, with the W two at the time. Uh, did not have kids and was had a girlfriend who's now my wife, and so didn't have financial obligations to the point where I had enough capital saved up that I knew that I could step away from work and transition to full time investing and have enough runway to make it work. Right, I knew that me personally, that was what I had to do in order to get myself from the W-2 over to full-time work uh, on the business uh, was just to have that runway and cut from one directly over to the other. I know a lot of people, they'll transition while they're still working. And I think that's a smart plan, uh, especially people with families and all that kind of stuff. That's how I got into it. But what made you look into real estate investing over yeah, you know, something else? For sure. Well, I looked at a few things, right? So when I was burned out, I sat down and made a list of the things that I might want to do, right? Um, different things that I might want to do, different company, different companies or businesses I might want to start, or a certification or something that I might get and go back into a W-2, right? Kind of thing, like some sort of advanced certificate, like in Salesforce or something like that, right? And my engineering background, I was just kind of like, well, I could figure that stuff out. But the more that I sat down and looked at it, the more I realized that having a job was just not going to work for me. It was just my personality, right? Just couldn't couldn't do it. The reason that I chose real estate though specifically was because here in my market in the Bay, you know, you can do large transactions, right? You can do large transactions and get a big chunk. And then you can use that money to invest in rental properties. And, you know, and that's that's true in any market. And that was the real reason that I chose real estate. You know, I did not have good people skills at the beginning of it, you know, traditional engineering background. You know, I started going to clubs, uh, real estate investing clubs, volunteering, meeting more pe meeting people, you know, forcing myself into social situations, hundreds of, you know, seller phone calls, hundreds of, eight, hundreds of agents phone calls sent out ringless voicemails to hundreds of agents in my market looking for off-market properties, eventually hit with one. But what, what made me decide to get into real estate was it's the 
most well-known vehicle for wealth creation. You know what I mean? It's the oldest and most reliable source of wealth creation just across the board. And so that's, that's why I wanted to get into it. I knew it was extremely competitive, but I also knew that if I gave it my true best effort, that I could likely be successful. And uh, thankfully, thankfully it worked out and uh, I've been doing it full-time six years. Yeah, that's, that was exactly the same reason why I got into real estate was, hey, Let's just see, I, I think I read that somewhere, I don't know how accurate this is, but 80% of the millionaires become millionaires from real estate. So I'm like, all right, you know, that's pretty good odds. So when you started, awesome. so you were living in the Bay Area, when you started, mm-hmm. did you ever consider investing in any other market or you were like, hey, I live in this market, this is the market that I know, so I'm just going to invest right here? For sure. Well, I did actually. So it, the story is actually kind of funny. So I grew up in the Cincinnati area. That market is very similar to, you know, other medium-sized city markets, St. Louis, what have you. And in 2008, I bought a house, a uh, three-bed, two-and-a-half bath, quarter-acre, two-car garage, fenced quarter yard, uh, f- fenced yard, all this kind of stuff, lots of land, lots of yard space. Uh, that was $130,000 in 2008. You moved to San Francisco and the same property is $2 million, you know, a million and a half, $2 million. And it was a very big mental shift for me to try to re to get my head around investing with those types of dollars. It was just a mental block. And so what I did when I first started getting into real estate is I did all the education stuff, the networking, all this, started driving for dollars, did that as well. So I did a lot of low cost marketing including bandit signs. And I tried some of that here in the Bay in the city, but it wasn't very fruitful. And again, I had a big mental block. So I actually drove like an hour, hour and a half outside of the city called to a city called Modesto, which is in the Central Valley of California. It's a strong agricultural area. Decent market, or the cost of the market was similar to what I had done in Cincinnati. And going out there, hanging the bandit signs, going back out there for seller visits and all that, I did that for a couple of months until I finally just got so exhausted with that drive and everything. I was just like, why am I doing this? This is nuts. So I started doing it in my own neighborhood and started focusing in, in that time, uh, spending my time in, in my neighborhood, in my, in my area. It took time for me to get up on my feet like it does most people. You know, I wasn't immediately successful uh, for sure. It was in, you know, in 20, I'll say in 2018, I got a business partner. Uh, end of 2018, and he and I were both kind of in the same place, had been doing it for a while, hadn't gotten any traction, and and just this was sort of the last, last hurrah, last effort, right? So he and I actually sat down and decided to uh, do some shared goals and to see about working with each other, accountability check-ins once a week, that kind of thing. Um, eventually we started doing driving for dollars and door knocking together. His background was engineering as well. And the social aspect was something that we were both lacking. I consider myself pretty intelligent. He's much more intelligent than I am, right? At least like 25%, 30% smarter. Mm -hmm. So any of the technical stuff that he does that, that he would do, he would do as well or better than me. Um, so it made sense for me to start working on the, the person part of it, right? The people skills, sales negotiation, you know, chit chat, you know, that kind of stuff, networking. Um, we started driving for dollars together, right? To build up those skills, go door knocking, identify properties that are no, you know, that are, that have signs of, um, signs of distress, right? Uh, and we actually even had an app and we chose a city and we went all through that and we could track what, you know, we could track exactly where we had been. And over the course of a couple of months, you know, doing it like on the weekends, we ended up 
covering the entire neighborhood to identify the entire city to identify properties and everything that we wanted. Um, then uh, around that time, uh, we finished that. Uh, I decided that direct mail made the most sense for for me to start doing. Um, mm. You know, I, I had about six months of runway left in my uh, in my in my cash reserves at that time. And the deal that I made with my now wife was, you know, once the money gets to a certain point, I'll transition and start job, you know, start the job search, right? When, once we get down to this, this amount of money. And I was doing a lot of outbound ringless voicemails to agents. We had, we had started our direct mail campaign where we were about to start the direct mail campaign. We were, we were thinking about it and it was my last like $25,000 of liquid cash. And the mail campaign was going to cost about $20,000 to do the way that we wanted to do, which was highly targeted, multiple touches, five or six touches. So make sure to set that up and, and get it going. Uh, so that was going. We had ringless voicemails going out to agents and calling back high, high volume, uh, talking to people about that stuff. And then literally it was mid-June of 20, it was 2019. It was mid-June of 2019. And my wife started expressing concerns and we're talking about next steps and timelines. And literally that phone, that conversation was interrupted by a phone call that ended up turning into a really good deal. Um, mm -hmm. My business partner and I locked that up. It was a single family home in San Mateo. That was very, uh, it was in a very good neighborhood. And it was a situation where the seller, you know, what she was an elderly woman, she was in her 90s going into assisted care and her adult children were taking care of the trust, right? They were selling the property and they were transitioning to her to assisted care and they wanted to sell the house to pay for that, right? And it was not in any sort of like shape to go on the open market. Well, you can put anything on the open market, I guess, but it was not going to, uh, was not going to qualify for traditional financing. Um, and one of the big problems was because there was like a deck that was unsafe and some of the, so there was some other stuff that was unsafe. The roof was was in really bad shape and it was even a fire hazard because uh, of the material that they used from years ago. And um, one of the adult sons also who had lived with his mother his whole life, right, was not having a good response to the property being sold. And he shut himself into one of the rooms in the house and the the agents you know, the selling seller's agent, right? They were like, all right, we'll do a three hour window. Like a three hour open house will disclose to people that they can't go into that room and we'll see what offers we get. And I was there, I was the only investor. You know, I offered, it was already at a good asking price. I offered, you know, a, below that they accepted it. And we ended up netting about $200,000 on that deal when it was all said wow. and done. Yeah. That was, and so that was my first deal in the Bay. That's right. So that was- <laughs> Yeah. So it, and it took about two years to do. Right. And so it took a lot of vigilance and a lot of like overcoming my own concerns and fears and all that kind of stuff. And that was one that actually came from a ringless voicemail um, to an agent. And so we worked with agents on that one. The second deal that we did in the city uh, was actually direct mail. So one of those pieces of direct mail had landed with an agent actually, and as well, but you know, her, her, uh, clients, they had a property that was vacant in San Francisco in a very desirable part of the area. And she worked with us in that money, the money that they were going to sell, uh, the money from the sale of the proceeds was going to go into their grandchildren's education fund. And so they weren't terribly concerned about how much they were going to get from it. They just, they lived in Idaho. 
you know, they had bought it decades ago kind of thing. So, and they had already taken care of their own individual retirements. Um, so we took that project on and um, that ended up netting us 300,000. So, you know, feast or famine is very typical out here. And so that first year, now I did not take home half a million dollars personally, right? I had my business partner. And then we also partnered with another person who had access to more capital to do the rehab. He had access to to contractors and things like that, escrow, title companies. So, um, so just so yeah. you flipped both houses, right? You didn't wholesale. No, we did wholesale those. So we did, I ended up wholesaling both of those. So um, the first one we ha- uh, we wholesaled to a hedge fund um, and the second one, we wholesaled to another uh, investor who gutted the whole property. The project took about a year and a half, something like that. And um, yeah, he he completely turned the entire inside out, you know, completely different, That's completely new, high-end. Incredible. Luxury. Yeah, $4 million. Probably the, the yeah, I don't think anybody can top those numbers on the first two deals. Yeah, 200,000, 300,000. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I, thank you. I try to be humble too, because it's rare. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. not, it's not like it happens every month. And, you know, yeah, your wife is like, yeah, keep doing this. Yeah, just, yeah. More, just a couple of these every month. Yeah. yeah exactly. Right. <laughs> My wife is like, forget that job. <laughs> you know, go ahead, go ahead and just keep doing this. So yeah. And then my partner and I continued on, right. And then okay. he and I continued to have success until uh, we continue to have success. And then last year, uh, right before the market turned, uh, you know, we did two projects. Those we did rehab, uh, put them on the market on Memorial Day weekend. Was that which was actually the very first weekend that the market started to turn that year uh, last year, um, and we did really well on both of those. And I had done most of the work on those actually. So I had negotiated with the sellers and I set up the contractors and did the scope of work and all this kind of stuff. And you know, my old business partner had been doing a lot of the stuff on the back end. But a lot of this stuff on the back end had been developed out so well that the front end was starting to make the real money in the business, which is what mm-hmm. I was doing. So we ended up separating and I started uh, started doing my own business last year and I started Bay Home Buyers uh, earlier this year. And okay. uh, after we split, you know, I did another project. I did another wholesale deal uh, down in San Jose. So Silicon Valley, again, uh, the gentleman, um, he inherited the property from his mother. And it was in a trust and, you know, he, it was full of his belongings and uh, I could tell it was really important to him to connect with somebody uh, with whoever, you know, whoever bought his house, right. It was very important to him that somebody who saw him knew, uh, knew what he was important to him, spent time with him. You know, he showed me all his hobbies. He had, you know, remote control airplanes. He worked at a tech company, not a tech company, a, uh, uh, they made large touchscreens, you know, like, you know, like wall size touchscreens right, kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and just all these different things. And then I did wholesale that one with a couple of people that are uh, extremely uh, prolific here in the Bay, extremely successful, well-known and respected. And they did just an amazing job with the property. And, you know, and um, the seller, you know, like we still stay in touch here and there. He took the proceeds of this prop of the sale of the property. He got more than he wanted or needed, he told me, and he ended up getting married. He and his fiance, you know, they moved to Illinois, bought a great house near her family. And um, so, yeah, they're, yeah. So the business continues and, and I love it. It's really great. So just uh, to get a count, how many deals? I mean, of course, you know, Bay Area super expensive mm-hmm. market. How many deals are you doing, like on average, per year? Two or three. Yeah, two, two or, or three, three per year. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then what's your primary marketing? Are you doing direct mail? Uh, still doing the invest voicemail? Doing both. Yeah. So still doing both. Um, and I'm, uh, so a lot of direct mail. I did a lot of A-B testing this year. So I had four different postcards that I liked um, and sent them out for testing, indiv- unique phone numbers for each through the Resimply program, right? And, um, you know, stuff came back. And we found very clearly a winner of the postcards, which one was had, mm-hmm, had, the, had the highest response rate. Uh, and then I did more A-B testing on that individual piece of mail with branding versus no branding, right? So right. usually what I'll put when I go out there, it'll have the logo. It'll have even my first and last name, right? I'll put Ted Manahan on there. And right. I find that actually uh, that actually goes pretty well for the sellers, at least in the market that I do, because people like being able to know that who the person is, right? If it's, you know, John buys houses or Susie buys houses or whatever it is, you know, people people scratch their heads of how real and legit is this guy. Whereas if the first and last name is on the mail piece, they can Google either my name or the company name and they'll find me either way. And then they can see me on my website, on social media. You know, they can, if they really want to, they can go look at my LinkedIn profile and see my professional history. All, all that stuff is still there. And now um, what I'm going to be doing uh, going forward and the ringless voicemails we do uh, put on top of that, something that I've never really done before that I started doing recently also is Facebook ads. We haven't gotten a lot of traction on that yet, but that's just a volume thing. And mm. um, I'm, and I'm going to start door knocking again, again actually. So okay. my my wife and I still rent here in the city. We love the part of the city where we are near near Ocean Beach. That's the name of the beach, Ocean Beach. Not very clever name, <laughs> but it's beautiful. Um <laughs> And, you know, so we, we really love where we live. And so I'm going to start farming this neighborhood, actually. So I'm going to be doing door hangers and, you know, taking business cards, introducing myself to people, knocking on doors. And all the data that I have from the A-B testing that we did, I also did multiple pain points using your list stacker, right, and Resimply. So any of them that have like five or six pain points, whatever they are, I can highly, I can target those and then put them on a map and then go to those parts of the neighborhood yeah. where, where they're located so you knock on that door someone's there maybe they're not you hang on it and then hang a door hanger on there if they're not then you go talk to the neighbors and if the property is vacant and it's been like that for a long time many times i found that the neighbors they're willing to help you know like i one time i even had a neighbor say here's their name here's their phone number here's their mailing address do not tell them that i gave it to you because this property has wow. been vacant for five years and he doesn't want to sell it and we're ready for it to move on so right. now some neighbors are skeptical, right? But, you know, if there's a property that's vacant and falling apart, um, a lot of the times the, the neighbors are going to be happy that it's getting Absolutely. put back, yeah, brought back up Absolutely. to market value. I'm curious, like being an expensive market, are you doing any TV ads, radio ads, PPC, or you don't think that's uh, really effective in your market? Uh, whether or not it's effective, I can't speak to. Uh, but I will say mm. I have not. I have not done it before. Yeah. Television is, a, yeah, television is especially expensive. Some people do it. You know, there was a gentleman. I, I know this guy, and he had a. Uh, his name's not really John, but he had um, commercials for John buys houses, right? And he was very active like last year. And I would see them at the end of like Jeopardy and all that kind of stuff, which is a very smart strategy because a lot of older people watch Jeopardy, right? My father right. does still. He's in his seventies. But radio, same. I haven't. I haven't tried it. I know other people that have done it. It sounds like. 
like it's been successful. But yeah, the Facebook ads or PPC, pay-per-click, a lot of people do that. Uh, one of my good friends does that, but and that's not something I've gotten into just because I, uh, I hear that that's a little bit of an art form. And it also can be very expensive. But then again, so is direct mail. And I would also imagine like, you know, in the Bay Area, you know, these are generally people a little bit more sophisticated. So I don't know how, what success, you know, you would have, like how many people would be going online looking for, hey, sell my house fast, you know, sell my house for cash because they generally have, you know, high net worth individuals. So I don't know, it's, it's interesting. So, so you're doing yeah. primarily direct mail and ringless voicemail, mm-hmm. the two mm-hmm. primary marketing channels. That's great. Yeah, there, yeah. yeah, those are the two things I'm primarily doing. I've never done text blasting, right? That's never, you know, like I know there are companies that with like launch control and all that kind of stuff that right. do text blasting. I've actually, I've not done that. And I know with 10 DLC, it's become profoundly difficult. So right. it's going to be something that I'm, that, that I'm going to kind of pass by the wayside, I think. Um, right. In turn- you know, not not try to do that. But yeah, one of the things about the Bay also, not just high net worth individuals, right? Because you lots of tech people, of course, right? Um, and biotech people and lots of different industries. It's a very robust economy. But a lot of the people that I work with are actually usually people that inherited their properties. Um, so they're not mm-hmm. necessarily like, they, yes, they're high net worth, but most of their net worth is in the property itself. So, and let, and, you know, so for instance, I'm working with three siblings at a property here uh, near my na- in my neighborhood. And one of them really wants to work with me and the other two really don't, right? Well, not that they don't want to work with me. They want to shop around, right? The one that, you know, I've spent a lot of time with them already laid out their options, ask them if they're going to work, if they just, if they want to work with an agent, you know, I tell them openly, I'm like, you're going to make the most money if that's your most important thing, right? Working with an agent, um, you know, but you've got a tenant in the place and they don't want to cooperate and all this kind of stuff. So if you want to work with me, we can definitely, you know, we, I can definitely see if it makes sense for us to work together, right? Mm-hmm. And so the one who's retired is ready to just be done with it and move on. And the other two who are not yet retired are more worried about the the amount of money that they're going to get. So there are, and everybody is, thinks about that, of course, right? But a lot of the times when I talk to people, when I talk to them long enough, it becomes clear that the that the money is not as important as whatever problem they have, right? So if they're reaching out to me, an investor or another investor, and not an agent, then there's some sort of pain point that's there, right? And right. so people that have these high uh, high value properties, they're going through some sort of emotional distress. They're looking for some sort of help. They may not even be consciously aware of how stressed or anxious they are, and and they're you know they they just want to work with somebody who's going to make it quick and easy. So they're not necessarily all like tech people or anything like that. But because mm-hmm. of the values being so high, to your point, they have a lot of different options, right? You don't see Absolutely. nearly as many you don't see nearly as many foreclosures out here, for instance, uh, because you know, you've got all this equity, right? The, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity in 10 years all of a sudden, well, you get behind on your payments, you can do a line of credit or whatever it is, right? You know, whatever right. strategy that they can use, refinance, you know, from the right. Point. So so someone, you know, you live in in an expensive market, someone who's listening to this podcast and they live in an expensive market, what would you recommend them? Would you recommend that, hey, stick to the market that you know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, instead of doing 40, 50 deals, maybe you'll do two or three deals, but the money that you're going to make on those two or three deals is going to be more than 40, 50 deals in a different market. Or yeah. would you say just go in a less expensive market and try these things? Like, what would you recommend someone starting out? I mean, it really depends. Um, you know, if if somebody like me who 
moved from a more affordable market into a more expensive market, it might make sense for them to start off like doing virtual wholesaling, maybe in the market that they were in, or maybe another market. If they, if they had the same problem as me initially in terms of not being able to wrap their head around the numbers, but somebody who grew up say in New York or wherever, right? If you know that area, I would say work in that area, right? I, I don't necessarily recommend the most expensive marketing channel, marketing technique, but the data is not super expensive. You can throw these things into a list stack or identify those pain points. And then you can go start knocking on doors and talking to people. You know, that's, that's a very affordable way to do it. Very similar to driving for dollars, same thing. And if you set aside that time, even if it's only like one day a week on your Saturday or whatever it is, you'll start gaining a lot of experience. The other thing that I would encourage people to do that are thinking about getting into real estate who aren't sure if they want to or not yet, or they know that they do and they don't know how to get started Uh, I highly recommend going to these networking clubs and going to them very frequently, finding good ones. There are good ones. There are not as good ones, but you know, there, there are ones where they'll just want to sell you products. There's not there and really not anything there to learn, but other ones that really do focus on the networking and the information share. And sometimes they'll include, I'll buy this thing as well, right? But getting into the networking events who with people who are in real estate and excited about getting into real estate and just being in that culture and being surrounded by it is going to help you sort of, it's going to help build out your dreams. It's going to help you build a vision. You'll be able to talk to the different people of what they did, what worked for them, what didn't work for them, what successes they had, what mistakes they made, all that kind of stuff. And they can even put you into who's a good mentor, you know, what's a good educational program. I know Fortune Builders was a really big program a few years ago. I didn't, I never did it, but one of my mentors did and he swore by it. You know, I have a mentor now that I joined his group and it's, um, it's an excellent group. It's not cheap, but once you get to the level where you can afford a $25,000, $30,000 annual thing to be in a networking club, uh, it ends up being extremely valuable because everyone else in that club is in the same level as you. But in order to get there, you know, the local RIAs are fantastic because you'll also find cash buyers there too. You know, if you get a deal, you lock it up, you might know someone who already has a deal uh, or who wants a deal. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's how I got started, like going to local networking events. Like that's how I got started meeting people who are active in the area, like asking them, hey, what area are you investing in? Okay, why are you not investing in this area? Why this area? And then, you know, for someone starting out, I don't think there's any better way than to just go to the local networking events. I want to ask you, like you mentioned a couple of uh, times that you identify the pain points. Have you noticed in your market if there is a particular pain point that you've had the most success with? You know, it may be like vacant properties or, you know, they have probate or whatnot. Like what have you identified in your market? Like what's the the pain point that generally works best for for your marketing? Mostly, what I've mostly targeted in the past is uh, long-term ownership, high equity. You know, that's not really a pain point, but it's an indication that somebody might be ready to sell. Uh, That's sort of a blanket one. But one that I started focusing on this year that I was surprised uh, started having real uh, returns was tired landlords. Right. So a tired landlord is a list that you can pull from your data source, you know, often mm-hmm. like property radar or property stream will have those. And it's based on an amount of time, right? It's a it's a second home that somebody owns, a non-owner occupied property that's been held that's been held for X number of years, right? Um, and or, you know, the the owners are senior citizens, something like that. And um, the idea there is that they've had a property for a really long time. And maybe it's depreciated all the way out. Maybe they've had it for over 20 years even. 
And a lot of the time people will manage properties themselves and they're just ready to get rid of the property, which is the, you know, the family, the three siblings I was telling you about, that's what it was. They inherited the property. Tenants been in there for 10 years. They're ready to sell it. Tenants not being cooperative. So, you know, tired landlords is a good one, uh, especially right now, I think, because the market with where it is and interest rates where they are, people who have lots of equity, I think they're the ones who are more likely to be selling right now because people who want to move into their next owner occupant, they're not necessarily going to want to give up a three and a half percent interest rate for a seven and a half interest, mm. you know, seven and a half percent interest rate. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of people not want to move right now because of that. So, so, so that's why one of the reasons I target high equity. Go ahead, please. So what, what has changed? you know with the, the interest rate where they are like seven seven and a half percent like touching even eight percent like what yeah. has changed like how have you changed in your business to adjust to the market are you doing anything different or just being more conservative i'm really curious just being more conservative you know like okay. that's sort of my main strategy is i'm always just very conservative in my numbers when times are good you can be less conservative because the market's climbing and people are going to be anxious for a property and a property will even appreciate enough to you know to take care of its own costs right so you see investors out here that will get into a project the project will take 9 months to a year longer than it probably should have taken and even though they made a bunch of mistakes along the way they have a property that's appreciated during that time, during that year. So, so there's that. And in fact, I did that one, one that happened to me once as well, uh, unintentionally, where the person living in the house was actually the beneficiary of a, of her husband's probate. And the probate had stalled because there was bad blood with the sister-in-law and the probate attorney, attorney, for whatever reason, had had gone dark. And so, you know, I worked with the beneficiary who was living the house who wanted to sell it, right? She stood to inherit it and then sell it and then to move on. And because the probate was in the middle and the probate attorney was uncooperative and the sister-in-law, the, the executor of the probate, did not want to work at all <laughs> with anybody right. because there were so many hard feelings. But it ended up being about a year, year and a half. And during that time, the property appreciated uh, quite a right. bit. So, and that was a rehab that we did uh, with my old business partner. And we netted about 230. And it probably wow. went up in value about 7,500,000 during that year. Really crazy things can happen out here. But the corollary okay. to that is major drops in the market, right? Right. So, so that, and that's what we see. And that's what we started to see last May with interest rates going up and everything like that and been continuing for, you know, a year and a half plus now. So I'll reduce my costs, right? Is one of the things I'll do. If direct mail gets to be too expensive, I'll transition to something else like the door knocking, ringless voicemails, um, Facebook ads. So doing right. those things now, that's what I'm experimenting with. So the yeah, direct mail really... is getting good leads still. Go ahead, please. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I'll be really curious to, like find out, you know, uh, connect with you in a month or so, like how your Facebook ads are working sure. out. Like the investors that I've talked to, I, I don't know anyone that's had consistent success with Facebook, but then you're in a different market with more, you know, tech savvy people. So it might be a bit mm -hmm. different. It might be actually one that could get you some good ROI. And I want to ask you, like you had a business partner, but you don't have mm -hmm. any more. What would you tell someone who's considering working with someone? Like what are some of the things that they need to make sure they have in place uh, sure. so they can have a long-term sustainable business partnership? 
Sure, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you that uh, clear roles and responsibilities is an important one, right? So who's going to be doing what? Who's going to be bringing value to the business? Typically, it's broken. If you're going to be like doing rehabbing, many times it'll be like the difference between, it'll be like acquisitions and disposition. If Well, not rehabbing, but wholesaling, right? Someone will stay focused on marketing acquisitions, and then the other person will focus like on disposition. Uh, or the, one of them will focus on managing the rehabs, right? I know, I know a married couple. Couple, that's what they'll do. He focuses on acquisitions, and she'll actually run the project of the of the work that they do. You know, I would I would encourage you to have something written in writing, also, right? So you know, clearly write out those roles and responsibilities. I would also encourage you to put your own timeline on it. So you know, we're going to give this a chance for six months, and then we're going to check in, kind of thing, or some something like that. If you want to start your own entity with them and do like a partnership, you can do that. But I encourage you to work together for at least a year before you decide whether or not to do it, right? Because you can start in a multi-member LLC and each of you have 50% ownership, which is what my old business partner and I did. It ended up bringing up a lot of things that we hadn't, hadn't realized that we did not cover a lot of things. And going through the process of starting our own entity together uncovered those things that we had not decided, that we had not addressed. And that was actually one of the reasons that we decided to stop working together was because right. just just coming up with the agreement, you know, for who does what for once we had an official LLC established uh, became unclear. And so that was one of the things that we ran into. I love so, the idea, especially putting like a timeline on it. You know, you may start out with you know, okay, my roles and responsibilities are let's say acquisition, you take care of disposition. But over time, you may realize, hey, acquisition is actually taking 80% of the work. If the disposition only takes 20%, then, you know, rather than being in that partnership for indefinite period of time, you know, putting a timeline on it, okay, we're going to try it out for six months or a year and see, you know, how much, you know, our roles and responsibilities are changing, you know, how much each, uh, you know, activity in the business is taking. And then, you know, it may not be a 50-50, may not be a fair partnership, but it may be like 70, 30, 60, 40. So I, I yeah. really love that idea of doing it, you know, with a with a timeline in place. And then moving forward, do you plan to, if the opportunity arises, do you ever plan to have a business partner? Or if you like, hey, at this point, I'm just happy kind of doing it solo, you know, doing like two, three deals, you know, like six figure mm-hmm. deals in my market and that's you know, kind of what you're focusing on? Well, I am always, in, I'm always available for JVs, right? So, you know, a JV is different than like a general partnership, right? For right. for listeners who aren't sure about that. So a joint venture is for an individual project or an individual deal. And we did that as well. So, you know, when my partner and I, you know, found a third person who had the financing and contacts to get those first two wholesale uh, deals through the door, we had a JV agreement with him that clearly outlined the splits and who's going to do what and everything. And it's just for this one deal. So oh, I'm definitely, yeah. And in fact, the buddy that I mentioned who he does acquisitions and his wife does the rehab, he and I have talked about partnering on things in the past. We were going to partner on something earlier this year, but it fell through because they're, the tenant, the tenants and the previous care worker were uncooperative, right? They, you know, they just were, they just weren't cooperative. In the city, in San Francisco, the tenant laws are so generous for the tenants that they, you know, don't have to cooperate really if they don't want to. But yeah, so we plan, I, I'll plan to work with him on another deal probably as it comes along because, you know, there are times when capital is strong here and, you know, I'm strong in capital or he's not or vice versa or, you know, I'm not strong in capital and somebody else is, you know. Mm-hmm. And JVing is also a really great way to I'll say this. So a lot of people, when they're starting out, uh, they're reluctant to JV, right? They're reluctant to partner up with somebody because they are looking at that 
10,000, 15,000, $20,000 wholesale fee, right? That's a lot of money. Really, it is. And, you know, like for somebody who's working a W-2, and I have, you know, my first job was working McDonald's, $5.15 an hour when I was 15 years old back in 98, right? Like a $20,000, $30,000 check is huge to somebody who has a W-2. And it can be very, very nerve wracking to be like, I'm going to give up half of that. But the reality is, is that if you're unskilled and you're not sure what you're doing and you're looking to make contacts with people, finding someone who is knowledgeable and capable and JVing with them in the long run is a lot better for you because they're going to give you, they're going to be able to walk you through the process and any contacts that they have that you need along the way become yours. You know, your escrow officer, the lender, the contractor, depending on what you agree to with them. And that's something that you should include, right? If I'm bringing you this deal and we're going to be splitting the profit, I want to make sure that I get an opportunity to connect with the people in, in your world that is going to be bringing value to this. Absolutely. Um, so. You know, just looking for those, you know, uh, intangible value that you can get out of the deal, right? The contacts mm-hmm. that you can make. Um, yep. I've had, like, we've been working with the same title company for years now. And one title company made a contact for me with a lender. I have a line of credit with that lender. And then mm-hmm. I purchased about 30, 35 properties from that lender. And it just mm-hmm. came through that title company that connected me with the lender. And I have mm-hmm. like, you know, ongoing business with that. So yeah, it's it's a relational business. You're so right. Like people look at it as a transactional business, but the mm-hmm. real money is made working on relationships. You know, you may want to give up 10, 15% working with someone, but the value that you're going to get giving that 10, 15% is going to be 10x, 20x of uh, what you're giving up on it. So totally agree. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah, no, great, great information. So yeah, I want to ask you some fun questions. Uh, what do you do? What do you do for fun in Bay Area? So you said you have, oh, you have a kid, right? I see a crib. And, I do. And yep, yep, uh, yep. Here he is. Yep, this is Andrew. Nice, Five nice. Months, Five months old now. Yeah, so Five, he, Five months. He was born May 10th. Uh, and I love him. He's fantastic. So he's most of my fun right now. And I really yeah. do have fun with him. You know, like I, you know, I, I just, I've wanted to be a father for a long time. And one of my motivations for starting my own business was actually be, it was because I wanted to be a father and not have a W-2. My dad did. Right. He was gone all the time, come home angry and tired, right? That kind of thing. I didn't want that. But fun things that I do in the Bay, I love to run. Right. There's lots of beautiful nature out here. Uh, the Bay is known for that. Um, hiking. You know, I don't bike as much as I would like. Um, I love taking my dog to the beach or to the park now with the baby. Uh, my wife and I love to travel. Um, so we travel internationally a decent amount. And we have what well, we have in the past. Right. That's kind right. of. Uh, that's stalled for now, you know, and then there are a lot of cool experiences that like a lot of cool experiences will happen here, concerts, any, any sort of the, any of the big bands will come through the Bay, One, you know, they'll either go through San Francisco or Oakland or San Jose, or even two of those. There's also uh, an immersive experience called Dining in the Dark, right, which uh, like you literally eat blindfolded, right? Really? Your whole experience, yeah, is in the dark. So that's something that it's like a pop-up kind of thing. I'm going to be doing a couple oh, of weeks. Nice. Yeah. yeah. That that sounds really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of cool stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the one book that's had biggest influence in your life? It could be personal or business. Oh, man. Uh, the book that's had the most impact on my life. Uh, that's an excellent question. There are a lot of them. From a business standpoint, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, no question. You know, like if you if you're listening to this and you're serious about your financial independence, read that book. You know, I would I would put that 
at or above any any financial mm -hmm. literal literature, including Think and Grow Rich, right? Uh, Richest Man in Babylon, right? Both of those are also excellent. Uh, any of those books will will be good for you. I don't have the same political viewpoints uh, as I did at the time. I was in my early twenties when I read this. I want to preface that. Uh, at the Shrugged was a very big uh, was a very big one for me. You know, I was libertarian for some time. My views in politics from the end of, uh, individual rights standpoint, right? That was the thing that really spoke to me as much as anything from her stuff, and that was like independence and you know self-respect and um, making sure that you uh, do your best uh, to to be in charge of your own life and all that and also just the the nature of business and transactional relationships having having value right there are emotional right. relationships your family your friends your religious leaders whoever uh, but then there are your professional contacts as well. And it's a very beautiful thing to be in a room of people who are at or above, slightly above or below your level, and you're all there to help each other by doing something for each other. I got three pieces of very good advice today, just talking to people on the phone that are in my networks, right? And so, so that's one of the things I do love about business is I can create value for somebody and because I create value for them, they give me something in exchange. In this case, you know, I'm helping the seller. I'm helping if I'm wholesaling, I'm helping the rehabber title company. If I use an agent, they, you know, they get something. And because we, because I put this together, the investor put it together, you get the lion's share of the profit. If there's profit, you also get the lion's share of the loss if there's loss. But there are other things in that, uh, in Atlas Shrugged that I don't agree with so much anymore. Now that I'm in my forties and, and I'm more mature and all that kind of stuff. Um, but those are the two books I would say. Cool. Awesome. And yeah, great recommendation. If you could spend a day with anyone dead or alive, who would you want to spend the day with and why? That's a good question. I mean, I'm thinking through like historical figures or people in my family. Um, I mean, that's a really, really interesting question. I'll have to say my mother, you know, I, uh, I was 12 when we lost her. And um, the ability to spend a day with her again would be hard to pass up. Yeah, yeah. that's a great answer, man. Thank you. All right. Uh, how can someone who's listening to the podcast can get in touch with you and just, you know, connect with you? Absolutely. My website, my company, Bay Home Buyers, uh, very easy. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, all that. If you want to email me, it's contact at baymebuyers.com. And uh, phone number also, call or text works. It's 415 930 9774. Um, cool. so we'll again, put that in the, the show notes also. Got it. For anyone to get awesome. that. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Got it. Sounds good. Awesome, Ted. Thank you so much, man. It's been it's been it's a pleasure connecting with you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always fascinated with uh, you know, you hear so many people. Like I used to live in Chicago. I, I started investing in Indiana. I live in San Diego now, but because I invest yeah. in Indiana, that's kind of I kept my business there. But it's always pleasure connecting with someone who's living in an expensive market and actually doing really well. It gives mm -hmm. hope to other people that are in that market, you know, so the default doesn't always have to be, hey, I have to go to a different market. So I really appreciate oh, yeah. you sharing your story. Of course, of course. And that is my advice. If you know that market and you're there, why not? Really? Right. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you so much, Ted. Appreciate it. Thank man. you, Shred. Thank you. Thanks.